If I were to quickly summarize the sum total of the COVID-19 pandemic and the response to that pandemic, you know, I'd have to say that the world's all of a sudden, almost overnight, became a very dark and a very sinister place to live. It was actually a living nightmare, and it did occur almost overnight. And it didn't occur just in America, but it happened everywhere across the entire globe. Nothing better lays claim to this fact than the story that you are about to hear this morning. It is the story of a genuine, honest-to-goodness American hero who literally became the victim of a new organized type of medicine, and I call it Nazi medicine because that's really what it is. Now, this man that we are going to be sharing with you wasn't just a victim of circumstances or a series of unfortunate events. This was a deliberate, intentional takedown of a good and innocent man. And that has implications. Well, thank you so much for joining me today on Unity Without Compromise. I'm Dr. Steve LaTulip. Recently, I spoke at a Healthcare Workers for Cary Lake event here in Arizona, and I was very honored to be able to hear the testimony of a very special person whom I will introduce you to today. As I listened to her story, my blood just began to boil again. And that's the sad part, because this sad story has happened many thousands of times all across America, and probably more than thousands of times. And believe it or not, it continues to happen. And that should really upset all of us. Nearly everyone now knows someone who has been killed and let's just call it what it is, murdered, actually, by the monsters working in hospitals and carrying out the orders of those who call the shots higher up. So the question is, why are they doing this? Why are they complying with it? And we are still trying to get at the answer of that. But when you hear this story, I think you'll understand much better why my guest wrote a letter to gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake. And I think you'll also understand why the No Patient Left Alone Act is very essential to every American. And right now, let me introduce you to my very special guest, Mrs. Sherry Smith. Sherry is an Arizona resident. She is a nurse and she is the surviving wife of a deceased hero, Charles Edwin Smith. Sherry, thank you for joining me today. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Sherry, I got to tell you that um, you really hit my heart uh, with your message uh, when I first heard you share your story about Charles. You call him Chuck, right? Yeah. So, um, Sherry, on, on October 13th, 2022, you actually wrote a letter to Carrie Lake. Why did you do that? I wanted to get Chuck's story out there. 
it's been a year now since Chuck died and it was, I've wanted to all along, but, you know, in doing everything and in writing even the letter and the detail that was in it was emotionally really hard for me to write. Um, I would start something and then, you know, rip it up or, you know, or barely start it and not get very far because of everything that's in it. You know, and I have to tell you that that letter literally only has a snapshot of the first three days that he was in there and not an entire snapshot of what everything that happened to him. Okay, so maybe we need to get into that. And uh, for those listeners, uh, I wish want you to know that the title of the letter that Sherry put down on there was No Patient Left Alone Act Advocacy Story, Murder of an American Hero. Now, I have heard Sherry's story, and I think that is most fitting. So first, Sherry, before we get into that, what happened uh, in the hospital, would you just briefly tell us about your husband? I mean, who was he as a person? Chuck was amazing. He was not, he was larger than life, like the zest that he had for life. You know, being retired Air Force and he served 21 years for the U.S. Air Force. Um, Part of his, the things that he did, he was part of the the crew that helped to bring the B-1 bomber online for the military. He was also part of the crew that did the top secret climatic testing for the B-1. That's just part of it. He was retired master sergeant and he was my MacGyver. There was nothing that Chuck couldn't do that Chuck couldn't fix. And, you know, like I said, he was amazing. And then he went on from after the airport, after he retired from the Air Force to um, go out and become a police officer. And again, even as a police officer, there's nothing that he did halfway. You know, he had six life-saving awards and most of those were in within one year time frame. He served as police union president for six years in a row. Um, he just put everything that he had into everything that he did. You know, even... He loved the Lord with all of his heart, and that made me love him more. You know, he was is the only man that I know that when he prayed, he had tears rolling down his face because he was talking to his father in heaven. Um, <laughs> I don't think I could have loved anybody any more than what I love Chuck. Well, I can hear that in your voice, Sherry. And, you know, um, I know it takes a lot of courage to even come on a radio program and talk about this. Um, And I think it's very good for you to talk about it. I think that the story of Chuck needs to be heard and what you have gone through needs to be heard. But, you know, I, I think that we all need to appreciate the fact that those of us who endure such things like this, um, 
life doesn't always get easier. In fact, it, oftentimes it is the the quiet moments at the end of a day before bedtime and maybe the wee hours of the morning when you first wake up that you feel the loneliest, the most empty. Yeah. And, it, and it hits you in the face, doesn't it? I mean, realizing yep. that Chuck is not going to be back. And I, yeah. you know, I still have my spouse. I, I cannot imagine the devastation that someone would go through that regardless of the circumstances. But when you add in the circumstances, Sherry, to what happened to your husband, um, then that compounds it. It multiplies the the sorrow, the anger, the anguish. And um, I think that this is what you need to share. Um, Why is it that you say, Sherry, that your husband was murdered? Let's just get into it. I mean, couldn't it have just been a bad outcome or could they have just made a lot of bad mistakes? I mean, why are you calling this murder, Sherry? A lot of the things that they did were just deliberate, you know, and there's no other way. As a retired nurse, I just I there's a lot of things that I didn't understand from the very beginning. I knew that something not right had happened to him in the first three days, but I didn't know what I didn't. He, I think partly didn't want to worry me, but I think the other part because of what he was going through, I think it was maybe hard for him to, to verbalize what was fully happening to him when he was in there. Um, you know, the first, do you you think that Chuck knew from the beginning that he was in trouble? I mean, that something was not right. Could you explain that? He, um, on day three, he was admitted on the 24th, first 24th and 25th seemed to be going fine. In fact, the 25th, they called me from hospital social worker called me to tell me that they were preparing to send him home that he would be going home on antibiotics and they would send him home with supplemental oxygen and you know he was doing well his doctors confirmed that and you know he's getting ready to go home then the next morning on the 26th everything changes You know, all of a sudden, you know, they have him on the high flow cannula. They claim he's not doing well. Um, And um, then they start telling me that, you know, of course, that he's having trouble breathing. Now, keep in mind, during this time, Chuck called me a lot. And we talked, we spoke on the phone because I couldn't be there. You know, I was either on on speakerphone or I was on FaceTime with him. You know, and so, up until so on the twenty fourth, on the twenty fourth and twenty fifth, you were talking with Chuck regularly through the day, and he seemed to be yeah. doing absolutely fine. So, what yeah. happened on the third day? On, um, I don't know the full. Even the notes don't say fully in in that morning. He was fine the morning of the 26th. He was still calling me. And all of a sudden, you know, I received my last phone call from him. 
you know, and during that last phone call with him, you know, he told me everything that he could that was going on, you know, and at that point they hadn't, they weren't treating him very nicely. And he told me that he said, you know, they're, they're forcing me to stay in bed, you know, and, you know, which I didn't understand because he'd been up and he'd been independent and doing well. And, you know, I don't, didn't understand their, the reason why they were forcing him to stay in bed, you know, and he said, you know, they have the rails up and I, you know, they want me to ring for them to come in while I ring the bell and nobody comes in. And in the course of this phone call, he had rang the bell three times, you know, and because of the medication that they were giving him, he had diarrhea from it. And do you know um, what that was? What was the medication? Remdesivir. I know now. I didn't know then. You know, steroids and remdesivir. Okay. We had in the very beginning in day one, we told the doctors he can't cannot have remdesivir. He was already in stage three kidney failure when he went in there. His kidneys were already compromised and, you know, it didn't take much for him to end up with having an acute kidney injury and that he would be sick from, you know, and we discussed that and the doctor, doctor listened, but he didn't really, when we told him, I told him like two or three times in the initial conversation when he was admitted and he finally says to me, okay, duly noted. I'm like, okay, duly noted as you're going to follow that or duly noted as, okay, you heard me and you're going to do what you want. And it ended up being the latter, you know, because that night he received his first dose, which if those of you who don't know is a double dose, you know, everybody gets a double dose when they're first given remdesivir. Um, Wait. Anyways, um, then you know, by that time he had had two doses of remdesivir by the 26th. He had two doses and that night he would receive his dose number three. Okay. But, uh, and so suddenly he took a dive after being on remdesivir. Do you know yeah. of any other medications that he was given uh, during that time? Remdesivir and they had him on steroids. But other than that, there wasn't you know, he was on no pain medication. He was actually doing well. There wasn't one opiate or pain medication administered to him until that day. And how about but, an antibiotic? Had they given him something? Um, z pack is what they gave him, zithromycin. Okay. Um, okay. And then, anyways, in this, my last conversation with him, You know, he says to me all this stuff. He tells me, you know, they're not letting me up. He said a lot of the nurses were being pretty nasty with them. And, you know, like, like not just, you know, saying, well, you need to stay in bed. It was more than that. They were just nasty. Well, why would they do that, Sherry? Can you explain? I, I I don't understand why they were doing it other than it was kind of a control thing for him. Because according to the notes, every note that I've read, and I've read every single page of 7,000 pages of his medical records. 
Wow. You know, I, I had to know what happened to him. Yeah. And I'm just curious, did they happen to mention his stage three chronic kidney disease in the notes? He, oh, it's all over his notes. Right. Okay. From the and they st- right. And, and people need to understand that remdesivir uh, primarily attacks the kidneys, but it also can cause other uh, damage to, to many other organs. Remdesivir mm-hmm. is toxic and it was known to be toxic from the beginning. It never should have been on the protocol, but it was placed on the NIH protocol. Uh, Dr. Mm-hmm. Fauci had a lot to do with that, didn't he? Yes, he did. Yep. I, so- I never... At that time, I had done some research on remdesivir, and I, I don't know about you, but it's almost like now the internet is scrubbed of anything, you know, negative that remdesivir does. It is. It is. It's been sanitized. And, you know, uh, Sherry, you didn't mention which hospital your husband was in. Would you share that? Yep. Banner Desert Medical Center here in Mesa. In Mesa, Arizona. And, you know, Arizona um, has always been a pretty conservative state. Mm -hmm. Recently, it's had its problems. But even though, Sherry, you shared this uh, with us, which hospital, um, you could pick any hospital you want. Because every hospital in the United States or virtually every hospital has the same NIH uh, protocol for hospital admissions. And um, how familiar with that are you, Sherry? Um, Not as familiar throughout COVID. I think a lot of everything through COVID, just for me, you know, I would hear things from people and I'm like, I literally said to a lot of people, you know what? They can't do stuff like that. That's what patient bill of rights is for, you know? So when I'd hear stuff, I'm like, you know, how are they possibly even getting away with this? You know, and I had heard about 1377, bill 1377 then, but I didn't really study it like I have now. Okay, well, let let me back up and and just uh, take off on something that you had mentioned to me earlier. Uh, You apparently do know the harms of remdesivir, particularly as it pertains to kidney damage. And it should have been uh, definitely avoided with uh, chronic kidney disease uh, at a stage three. So that you understand. But um, let me just ask it to you this way. Would you blame Chuck's death on remdesivir or do you actually believe it was more than that i believe it was more than that so okay, could remdesivir you explain it? was only part of it well on that day in that last conversation that i had with him he goes on to to tell me that um the nurses aren't treating him very well and he said you know i have to get up to use the restroom and you know, they come in and they yell at me when I get up to go. But yet when I ring the bell for them to come and help me, they don't come. He goes, what am I supposed to do lay here in my own feces? And, you know, during this course of this conversation, he tells me, he said, I need you to listen to me. He said, I don't have much time before they end up coming back in here because he just rang the bell thinking that they would be in. Anyways, 
he tells me, said, you know, told me that he was scared, which for me upset me. I've never in the time that I've known him ever heard Chuck say that he was scared of anything. You know, it didn't matter, you know, even when he was in Iraq and he, in his time there, he never, he, yeah, he felt fear, but he used to tell me, you know, fear is only, courage is only fear properly channeled. Um, anyways, you know, and of course I started to cry when I was talking to him. You know, he told me that he loved me, told me that he probably wasn't going to be coming home. And what day was that? What day was that? The 26th of August. So this was all on the same day. He went from doing great to feeling like he was not going to make it alive out of that hospital. And I don't know. I don't think it was because of physically how he was feeling, because like I said, for them saying that his breathing was starting to get bad, he carried on a 40 minute conversation with me without missing a beat. You know, someone who's struggling to breathe can't talk, you know, because everything, every word that they try to get out of their mouth, it's difficult, especially when you're taking all of your energy to breathe. And he wasn't struggling that way. He wasn't. So um, did they ever add any other medications um, when he was struggling, when he began to have trouble breathing? Um, That day, after all of, you know, the stuff, everything that started to transpire, then they started to give him breathing treatments, but they weren't even you know, in the first couple of days, he never even had any breathing treatment. Not one. There's nothing. Sherry, so just, was he in? Was he in the ICU? No, he was in. Um, first, he was in the main unit, like on the floor. I guess they had a COVID floor, and then they had a, you know, a, another unit up from there. That you know were kind of middle care. At that point, that day, that morning, is when they moved him to the next level. Which, you know, kind of, like I said, I didn't understand. So, because he had been doing well. In fact, the first two days he was on, on the 24th when he was admitted, he was in the 90s, his SATs, and he was on room air. Then the 25th, he was... They had him on oxygen, but they, it was, it was like just regular oxygen. It wasn't that much. The leaders weren't that high. What, what struck me throughout all of this. Okay. His sats are fine. You know, they, they weren't bad as far as I knew. And, you know, he was telling me throughout, you know, my sats are at 95 or they're at 98 or, you know, well, 98 is normal. No, yeah. 98% saturation is normal. Yeah. Very normal. Um, so there was some point in time when it sounds like he was just crashing and yeah. did they give him any other medications at that point in time that you know? Oh, yeah. Yep. And what were those? 
after my, I have a breakdown, a timeline breakdown of everything. It was either at literally after we got done on the phone, after him calling the nurse's station three times and no one's answering him and he's locked in bed because both rails are up. Other, the only option was to go over the end of the bed. And I finally, after I get off the phone with Chuck, I called the nurse's station and told the nurse, look at, he's called you three times. When I was on the phone, he needs help. He needs to get up to the restroom. So the nurse says, we'll go in and we'll deal with that. Well, 1420 was my phone call with him. And like I said, we spoke for about 30 minutes or so, give or take. 1507 was when his first dose of Ativan was administered to him, like minutes after getting off the phone. First dose of Ativan. What is Ativan? Can you? Ativan is a anti-anxiety medication that they often use. You know, they'll give for somebody that's anxious to, to calm them down. Okay, was he needing that? Was he was Chuck uh, pretty anxious by that point in time? Um, I I think there was some level of anxiety, but not to the point where you know that he really needed it. He just needed to. In fact, when he started our conversation, he said, "I just needed to hear your voice." He needed me. Is what he needed. Right. You know. Um, oh, so so let's just clarify. Ativan is a benzodiazepine. It uh, yeah. it's a class of medication that also has uh, side effects, and one of those potential side effects is respiratory suppression, particularly yeah. if it's given in conjunction with an opioid like, say, morphine, which they commonly give in the hospitals. Mm-hmm. Did Chuck happen to receive any morphine that you know of, or not? Yeah, that day after that, like the next dose of um, opiate medication would be oxycodone. And but about two hours after they gave the Ativan, they would give him oxy. But at the same time as they gave him oxy, they were giving him uh, um, guaifenesin with codeine in it as well. In addition to the oxycodone. Yeah, in addition to oxycodone. So the next dose would be given at 1747. Okay, so so a combination of Ativan, lorazepam, and oxycodone and guaifenesin with codeine. And codeine uh, causes, it it really helps to suppress a cough. But if mucus is accumulating, that's not at all a good thing. And a combination of two opioids with uh, a benzodiazepine will cause significant respiratory suppression or suppression, especially if he's suffering from a respiratory illness, right? Yep, exactly. Well, then at 1747, they would give him that. And then at 1831, they would give him more oxycodone. And um, how much IV fluid was he getting during this time? Um, they were overloading him with fluid, in my opinion. You know, the fluids were going through. Like, there's some notes that say that he had 
One said that he had 9,450 milliliters of fluid. Well, that's nine liters of fluid. And his body only got rid of 6,000 units of that fluid that they gave to him. Wow. Okay. So that tells me that he was fluid overloaded. And, yeah. and, and that is, you know, at that point, they know what they're doing. They yeah. know what they're doing. We measure hydration status based on urine output. But if the yeah. kidneys are shut down, then the kidneys cannot filter the fluid, get rid of it. And so yeah. it accumulates and it accumulates primarily in the lungs, which can cause more difficulty breathing, more respiratory difficulties. Yeah. So this um, you're telling a story of a disaster in yeah. progress and these people, do you think they knew better? I mean, you said you're a nurse. Oh, yeah. Right? <clears throat> yep. I don't know how as a nurse you, it was like everything that we knew and that we know as healthcare providers totally went out the window, you know, giving opiate medications and benzodiazepines and stuff like that to, to people that you all you say are in respiratory distress but yet you're giving them things that cause respiratory distress you know at this point when i talked to him that day he was on no pain medications nothing like that at all he doesn't receive one dose of any of that until this day you know and then oh. he'll go on to receive another dose of uh of oxycodone and and Wifenison with codeine in it as well. And then another dose of lorazepam. And that was at 2201. Well, after that, he becomes confused and agitated. And um, according to notes, he starts to be a little bit more combative. You know, it says that he's agitated and anxious, impulsive. You know, he's getting out of bed. And um, yeah that but then everything you'd expect everything you yeah. would expect with the medications and the treatment he was given uh sherry okay. i i'm very inclined to agree with you this was not a medical treatment no. this was in essence a death protocol and this is what's happening yeah. across america well we're going to take a real short break and get okay. right back into it and we will talk about uh, not only what we can do about it, but what we must do to change the way things are unfolding in America. I'll be right back. Cold and flu season is here. Wouldn't it be great if you had a way to minimize airborne viral threats? Well, now there is, and it's a povidone iodine-based antiviral nasal spray called Cofix RX. You might even say it's just what the doctor ordered. To reduce your chance of getting hurt, you wear a safety belt when you're driving. To limit sun damage, you wear sunscreen on the beach. Cofix RX is just like that. It's an additional layer of protection. It's sold by thousands of pharmacists and medical doctors nationwide. It's made right here in the USA. Again, it's a povidone iodine-based antiviral nasal spray. You've heard them talk about it here on the Outloud Network over and over again. Check out cofixrx.com. That's C-O-F-I-X-R-X.com for a retailer near you or use coupon code OUTLOUD for 20% off at cofixrx.com. 
Hello, I'm Ben Marble, MD, and I founded MyFreeDoctor.com as a donation-supported, faith-based nonprofit with a mission to save lives by delivering free doctor visits to patients in all 50 states of America. MyFreeDoctor.com treats a broad range of health concerns like COVID-19, long COVID, sinus infections, urinary tract infections, rashes, medication refills, and more. So please visit MyFreeDoctor.com where we're healing America one person at a time. These days, every time you turn on the news, it seems like there's a new threat to your health. Maintaining a strong immune system has never been more critical. Advanced Nutrition Company, Healthy Cell, created Immune Super Boost to help you strengthen your immunity. Unlike other supplements that don't work, Immune Super Boost is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed nutrients proven to support immunity, like vitamin C, D3, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea. These physician-formulated gels come in a small gel pack. Tear off the top and shoot it down, or mix it in water. Boost your immunity. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. Welcome back to Unity Without Compromise with Dr. Steve Latula. You're on America Out Loud Talk Radio, where patriots gather to speak the truth loudly, boldly, and clearly. This show airs on weekends at 12 and 5 p.m. Eastern Time, and it then goes to podcast. I write one or two articles a week for America Out Loud, and you can access those at americaoutloud.com. I also wrote a book called Unity Without Compromise, and if you really want to know what the Bible has to say and how to interpret it correctly, this is a book for you. If you are not sincere in seeking the Lord and in Christianity, this is not a book for you. Well, today I have joining me a very special guest, Sherry Smith, who has very graciously and bravely stated her case of why she believes her husband was murdered in an Arizona hospital. Now, I will ask you to add up the clues and you decide for yourself. Now, some of you might think that these are the words of of just a grieving, uh, desperate woman who is exaggerating the untimely death of her devoted husband. But let me tell you something, you would be completely wrong to think that. I have been personally involved with a few dozen patients or family members who were headed to the hospital or in the hospital, and each one, each one who was rescued from the hospitals and treated outpatient lived, every last one of them, each one who also avoided the hospital and received outpatient treatment lived. But the survival rate of those who were hospitalized and methodically treated with the cookbook recipe, which is based on Anthony Fauci's recommendations, these people performed dismally. They went in feeling pretty good, not so bad at all, expecting to come out in a day or two, and they never made it out alive. Many of them. If they did survive, their recovery was slow and difficult. 
slow and difficult, and many of them, like Charles Edwin Smith, never made it out alive. Now, we know that drugs like morphine, oxycodone, codeine, the opioids, when combined with a benzodiazepine, they both cause respiratory suppression, and it can be very severe if the lungs are compromised, more so with a respiratory illness, in other words, when the oxygen saturations drop because of that respiratory suppression, what do they do? They place them on a ventilator. And then when they do that, they administer high dose oxygen. Now, oxygen in high concentration is toxic. Oxygen, which is necessary for life, at the atmospheric pressure that we receive oxygen becomes a poison to our bodies in high concentration and it does multi-organ damage. Yeah. Add to that kidneys and the other organs that are injured by a drug like remdesivir, which is given early on as a treatment, if they can get you to take it, that will take you down. And this is common knowledge, and I'm telling you, it's common knowledge by these people that work in the ICUs and on the hospital floors, on the general medicine floors, they all know this stuff. Because if they didn't know it, they would be incompetent and they would not belong in a hospital working to treat patients. They were intentionally harming and killing these patients, and that is called premeditated murder. Yep. Well, Sherry, let me ask you this. You mentioned the No Patient Left Alone Act. Um, the, it was called SB 988. And this was a law that was passed on April 6, 2022. So this year earlier by Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida. Now, mm -hmm. this act declares that families actually have a right to visit their uh, sick loved ones in the hospitals and in hospice and in long-term care facilities. Yet mm -hmm. this right was waived by the federal government throughout the entire pandemic and contributed directly to the death of many patients in so-called care homes. Mm -hmm. Patients actually died in these care homes of loneliness and neglect because they were left alone and families yep. were not permitted to visit them. Now, this is atrocious. This is absolute. Uh, this is criminal. This is a complete violation of all constitutional law. And, wow. you know, this might be stating the obvious, right? But yeah. why do you feel, Sherry, that it's so important to advocate for such a law in Arizona? Let's just spell it out. Okay. First of all, we don't even allow solitary confinement for hours and hours on a, at a time in our prisons. But yet they take, have taken these, these patients, you know, like my husband, and they're alone. You know, they don't see a face. My husband wasn't even being fed. You know, and that day, when I talked to him on the phone that day, he hadn't even received breakfast. You know, amazing. so amazing. So you're saying it, it probably would have made a difference in the case of your husband if you had been allowed to be there advocating for him and actually providing care for him from what you're saying, yeah. right? Well, you know, he wouldn't have received the medication and, you know, a lot of it too with Chuck was him not him refusing the treatments that they had. Like they, you know, when you talk about oxygen, every time I turned around, they were upping his oxygen. Okay. 
there's a lot of factors that go into raising somebody's oxygen levels. You know, someone might, one person might be at 90% and they're fine. Okay. You also look for other factors. Okay. Can they talk to you? You know, are they out of breath when they're moving around and stuff like that? And there's, there's no indication in his notes that that was even happening, but yet they were raising his oxygen levels. And I think finally too, what was going on is they, you know, after they gave him the dose of lorazepam, they started forcing him to try to use the BiPAP machine. And he told me the BiPAP was painful, you know, when they put it on. Well, even that, you know, we have, we have lawsuits to do with BiPAP machines because if the pressure's too high, it can damage your lungs. Absolutely. And your airways, you know, and he told me it hurt. You know, so he was taking it off. But they continued to force, force him it upon to him. use it. Yeah. Force right. him to use it. And then Shall when we... he became yeah. combative, it was, you know, it was a. Uh, in 17 hours, he would receive 10 doses of some sort of opiate, benzodiazepine, or, you know, things like Haldol. He received that. And then from there, he would receive morphine. All while they're saying that he's short of breath and he's gasping for air. Right. And remember, he was given 9,450 milliliters over nine, almost nine and a half liters of fluid with, uh, with kidneys that don't work. Now, this is called drowning a patient intentionally. That's all you can call it. That's exactly what it is. And let me tell you, for the, for those who of you who have had patients in the hospitals and lost your loved ones because of this, you all you can conclude is that this was intentional. They know what they are doing. And once they have you at this point in that critical a condition and they put you into that condition, um, pretty much all hope is lost. They've got you. Um, oh. Are you aware, Sherry, of the term jailbreaks? Yep. Okay, so um, patients actually have been rescued from hospitals as long as they have not been placed on a ventilator and somebody can speak for them if they can't speak for themselves. You can sign them out. They would call it AMA, Against Medical Advice, Mm -hmm. which is very debatable because the doctors on the outside who know what they're doing would say, no, this is my medical advice. Get them out of the hospital. They are killing you. One doctor who did this was Dr. Molly James, and she did a superb job of it. And I'm telling you, every doctor who got these people out of the hospitals, they all lived. They recovered. They did wonderfully. And it took no time at all. And that's a surprising thing. Chuck didn't go on a ventilator because he absolutely needed to be. Everything in the evidence. In fact, there are readings even throughout them giving him the oxycodone. You know, after they give the lorazepam when he becomes combative, then they restrain him, force him to be in bed. Then they forced the BiPAP on him, made, then he couldn't get it off because they had him tied to the bed. And then when he was fighting against that and that wasn't enough, they gave him Haldol and then added morphine to it. You know, Chuck was vented because of their actions. It wasn't, he wasn't vented because that's what needed to happen. 
and his lungs were bad. You know, they overdid the fluids. They overdid the oxygen and in, in my view of everything, you know, because yes, and exactly they the sim- yeah. And the, exactly the symptoms that they, he had were oxygen toxicity. You know, that's why divers have regulators on their, their diving equipment. So they don't get too much oxygen when they do, if they end up having it, they end up having to go into a hyperbaric chamber for it. Exactly right. Well, you know, the fact is, this was intentional, it was harmful. And that creates some problems for us, uh, because we have to ask, um, well, what are we going to do about it? Now, if we have the No Patient Left Alone Act introduced in Arizona, obviously, at least it's going to give a patient who has been victimized, as was Chuck, very clearly, at least it gives them some hope of somebody advocating for them and maybe even getting them out of the hospital. Because let's remember this, this uh, NIH protocol is not going away. They will find any excuse to declare you a COVID patient and they're still making money off of you like crazy. Yep. And they are still terminating patients willfully in the hospitals. And that is yep. called premeditated murder. So um, let's take up the uh, issue of uh, Senate Bill 1377, Sherry, you mentioned mm-hmm. it earlier. Now, let me just explain to people, this bill pertains to civil liability, and particularly during a pandemic, and it applies to caregivers. And this was actually passed on April 25th of 2021. Now, in my opinion, when I read through this bill, this bill is nothing more than a license to do evil and to get away with it completely. And if I, I'll, I'll read a short passage, I, I've concised it, uh, just shortened it down to provide the essentials. But it says, if a governor declares a state of emergency for a public health pandemic, blah, 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 a person or provider that acts in good faith to protect someone from injury from the public health pandemic is not liable for damages in any civil action for any injury, death, or loss to person or property. And that's based on a claim of a failure to protect unless, and this is the unless it is proven by clear and convincing evidence of willful misconduct or gross negligence. So let me ask the listeners, I mean, do you think that Chuck's case would fit under this clear and convincing evidence of willful misconduct or gross negligence. How could you conclude otherwise? But they slip that in and it creates a problem because first of all, they talk about acting in good faith. Now that has a whole new meaning because in good faith to whom, to what, right? And they kind of define it later. Go ahead, Sherry. who Who decides good faith? Yeah. Good faith in whom? Good faith in the government? you got to be kidding me, right? Yep. And then how do you prove anything by clear and convincing evidence of willful misconduct or gross negligence when all the evidence in the world has made no difference whatsoever in establishing any reasonable emergency protocols? I mean, nothing makes sense any longer, right? No, nothing does, you know, other than, you know, they develop COVID protocol. And even the the protocol and, (coughs) 
you know, for, <clears throat> excuse me, even for what they consider ARDS, which is acute respiratory distress syndrome. Okay. Most people on an everyday basis would, would fall into that category because you only need two of the, the requirements to even meet that. So they, right. they even lowered the standards for that. That's you know? right. That's right. They changed the standards to fit their protocol. And despite the fact that we have evidence galore of intent to do harm, um, mm -hmm. nobody, who's being persecuted or prosecuted rather for these things. And, and you know, this bill, SB 1377, mm -hmm. pertains actually to three conditions. Uh, in good faith of support of states response to the emergency, they can delay or cancel a procedure. And we've actually seen this happen, right? If you're not yes. vaxxed, um, they'll cancel a procedure. They'll cancel a life sustaining organ transplant if you haven't gotten the shot and they can get away with doing that. They can provide uh, when it comes to providing nursing care or procedures like IV fluids, ambulating or walking the patient, which is so basic to care to get the patient moving. And all yeah. these other protocols are completely ignored and they can get away with it because mm -hmm. of this bill that says they're not liable. And they don't have to do anything. They don't even, according to that bill, they don't even have to treat your pre-existing conditions. They only exactly have right. to treat COVID. So exactly. if you go in with something else that you have, like Chuck's chronic kidney disease, um, they didn't have to make sure anything. It was all about COVID. And they put That's the right. word protocol in there because, okay, for to meet the requirements for a lawsuit, and this is not trying to give legal advice, but it, okay, you have to, to prove negligence you have to prove that they didn't follow protocol. So they had to develop COVID protocol so that it would make it so that as long as they followed that, that you couldn't sue for COVID. That's exactly right. And what you're saying is that, you know, these people who are acting supposedly in good faith are relying on and reasonably attempting to comply with applicable published guidance that is relating to the pandemic that was issued by a federal or state agency like the CDC, the NIH, the NIAID, i.e. Dr. Fauci. In other words, you blindly do what the government tells you to do and you have nothing yeah. to worry about as a health worker, right? But if you yeah. disagree with them, look out, you've got exactly. serious problems. Yeah. Yep. And so, you know, regardless of how lacking is the evidence for, for a government protocol to be effective, regardless of how irresponsible or how costly or how proven ineffective the therapies are, it doesn't matter. You just do what the government tells you and you are free of all liability, all responsibility for your evil actions. And this is what's going on. But what people, including these monstrous doctors and those who help them, know this. You are not morally free, not ethically free. James oh. 4.17 says, to him who knows to do good and does not do it to him, it is sin. And that will be judged. See, right now, I, th I think what we are seeing and have clearly demonstrated is a Nazi takeover of medicine that is literally killing millions of people, both in America and worldwide. And during the Jewish Holocaust, I mean, how many millions died, right? Well, during the second COVID Holocaust, which we are facing right now, 
think of how many millions more will die. Actually, more people have died from COVID worldwide than what died who the number who died in the Holocaust. We've already exceeded that. Right. Except that it's not all just from COVID. Sure, the the virus did kill some, a lot of people, and it was a ramped up uh, gain of function virus patented for harm. And so was the so-called vaccine. You're right. It was never about saving lives ever. No, it was not. And it just for me, it just it became. I was in disbelief in the very beginning. You know, as a nurse, you know, I understood some of the things. And but as time went on, as I watched what they were doing and new friends that were in and, you know, they weren't. It just it became more and more unbelievable to me, the things that they weren't doing. Exactly. Atrocious. Sherry, you sound like you are pretty sound on Carrie Lake being Arizona's next governor. Is that correct? Oh, yes. So you know, what I, do you expect from her? I mean, as far as fixing medicine goes, what do you think she's going to do? And do you think she'll follow through? I believe that she will, actually. I think if anybody, you know, COVID has had a lot of reaching effects. And I feel that, okay, there's a lot of things that need to be healed. You know, our citizens now don't trust medical care. In fact, I know people who would rather die than go to the hospital because everybody knows what's happening there. You know, people are figuring it out. Yeah. Finally, they're figuring it out. They don't want to go. You know, I know somebody who was in the same hospital as my husband who you know, they did everything that they did to Chuck to him. He ended up coming out. But in the day, the day that they vented him, the nurse told him, you know what, you're unvaccinated. She goes, I don't care whether you get up or not. You can sit there and die. Yep. Who tells that somebody is, that? Exactly right. Well, Sherry, let me ask you, you know, this. You know, losing I, your Losing your husband, and this is devastating. Um, Do you have a plan to make Chuck's death actually count for something so that you don't feel like he died in vain? Yeah, I do. There's a lot of things. First of all, I would like to be part of, you know, and I am now part of Carrie's coalition, hopefully, and I pray if anybody could help this, our state to heal. And hopefully bring faith and trust back into the, the medical field and weed through those who, who have an agenda. You know, I think Carrie Lake can, but my plans going forward to be part of that, helping to change the laws, but then also helping to make it better. But I, and eventually I want to get to the point where I actually start a foundation you know, in in the name of Chuck, the Charles Edwin Smith Memorial Foundation. And what that will look like, I really don't know whether it'll be scholarships or but it'll be to to help like military and police families who suffered loss. Yes, it will bring the public's awareness up to make them realize what's really going on. And I think that's what we really do need 
to accomplish here. Sherry, your story has been powerful, and I thank you so much for sharing that today. It means a lot to me, and I know that it touches the heart of everyone who hears your story. Uh, your husband, Chuck, was a true American patriot in every sense of the word, and he's now in God's gracious hands, and uh, his life was a life very well lived. And I am so honored to have you on my show today. Sherry, could you give our listeners some contact information so they can reach you? Yes, I can be reached. My email address is sherrysmith at myyahoo.com. And that is spelled S-H-E-R-R-I-S-M-I-T-H at myyahoo.com. Excellent. Sherry, I thank you for that. And I thank you again for having the courage to come on and tell the world your story today. Thank you. My pleasure. Well, good people, let me tell you something. Sherry is not alone. And I know she would love to hear from you. There are many thousands like her who have helplessly watched their loved ones succumb to the forces of evil who now terrorize humanity. We must pursue justice. We need to stand unified against this beast called government. And we certainly must hold these people accountable and stop them at all cost. And I am very willing to do that. I am eager to do that. Are you? Remember that unless the Lord builds the house, the city, the country, they labor in vain who build it. We have work to do, and it begins with you and me returning to the one true God of the Bible and doing things God's way. You've been listening to Unity Without Compromise with Dr. Steve Latour. Please get out there and do your best for God and country. Thank you. See you next week. Adieu.